Buenas tardes, buenos días. Eh, muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. Hoy tenemos un invitado súper especial. Mariano, muchísimas gracias por estar acá, eh, por aceptar nuestra invitación y por permitirnos publicar una gran parte de, del research que estás haciendo, que es muy importante que has hecho a través de todos tus años. Gracias. Voy, voy a dejar que Felipe lea la biografía. Y de ahí seguimos con las preguntas. Gracias, Mónica. Buenas tardes. Good afternoon, guys. Uh, we're here at Material Business. Uh, we're presenting Mariano Capes. He obtained his bachelor degree in Material Science and Engineering at the Instituto Sabaro in Argentina in 2006. And then obtained his PhD in 2011 at the Ohio State University. His PhD te uh, thesis was distinguished with the Morris Cohen Award, award annually by the Electrochemical Society to outstanding uh, graduate research in the ocean. Since 2014, he's a research scientist at the National Agency of Atomic Energy in Argentina as well, and a professor at the National University of General San Martin. Currently, his research is focused on environmentally assist cracking and localized corrosion in uh, materials used in nuclear power plants, pipelines, and in the oil and gas industry. Thank you. I didn't realize I was speaking in Spanish at the beginning. <laughs> So, that was my fault because we were talking Spanish before the right? so, well, thank I'm sorry, you Monica. Much. I'm just going to do it once again so everyone can uh, can follow the, the flow. Well, thank you very much, everyone, and then welcome to Material Business, like interviews, bi-weekly interviews we have. Mariano, thank you, Felipe, for the introduction. Let's dive right into it. So, Mariano, tell me a little bit about your experience in research and development, please. So for me, it all started during college. I studied material science at Instituto Sabato, as Felipe said. And this institute is particularly is particular because it is located inside um, an atomic center here in Argentina. So most of the professors who were teachers at, and who are still teachers at this institute, I'm a teacher myself now at this institute, a professor. And uh, most of us are devoted to doing research and development for the nuclear industry and conventional industry. So from the beginning during, under, during my undergrad uh, studies, I was very familiar with what scientists do. So I decided science for me and I went to do my PhD at the Ohio State University, working from now the distinguished professor Sherry Frankel. And there I did many projects on, first it was on cathodic delamination, of pipelines, then it was on sour corrosion, hydrogen permeation, surface test cracking, corrosion fatigue. And I finished it. I had a very good time at the US, but I decided at that moment that my mission was in Argentina. So I came back. I came back to, to the same atomic center that I left some five years ago at that, at that time. And since then, I'm working on very different materials and essentially doing research and develop, I think, 
for uncorrosion means finding new solutions for an old problem, right? Because all of us who have seen uh, corrosion in, in, in college, we know that metals, they want to corrode, and they want to corrode because the Purveda Yaram says so, right? And we can change the kinetics, but they still want to corrode, right? And with that, there's nothing we can do. We can find, in terms of thermodynamics, there's nothing we can do. We can find solutions to make it kinetically slower, right? That's part of the uh, corrosion engineer to make the kinetics slower. And that is very important because those engineering materials that they want to corrode, they, they are used on all kinds of plants like load bearing structures, pressure vessels, pipelines, and so on. So they will corrode, someone needs to take charge of that. And since then, since now more than 10 years, I've been working at this atomic center in R&D. I've been lucky to work on different materials like copper alloys, aluminum alloys, magnesium alloys, stainless steels, carbon steels, and others. Wow, that's amazing. That sounds super interesting. Is that, can I ask you, is that, uh, is that plant still working or is it still, it operates still or is not operating? Uh, do you mean, uh, which plant? The, uh, the atomic center. Yes, yes. Here uh, in Argentina has, uh, right now we have three operating nuclear power plants. Right, so uh, those uh, nuclear power plants in Argentina, they were not constructed by ourselves, but uh, Siemens constructed two of them. Actually, it finished one of them uh, some uh, 30 miles from here. It finished one of them. It's a heavy water reactor. Then, uh, let's say about uh, eight years ago, we finished the second one, which is a Siemens power plant as well. And then there is a canadium deuterium reactor, right, in some uh, 400 miles from here. And that was finished in the, I think, 60s or 70s. Not know, I don't know exactly when, but it's, um, it was many years ago. All of them are under, under operation. And also Argentina is quite advanced in the design now of its first uh, nuclear reactor that it's entirely designed here in Argentina and it's a small modular reactor and it's a very interesting design. You can Google CAREM if you want, C-I-R-E-M and that's a small modular reactor which is being built right now also some 30, million, some 30 miles from where I am I right right now, some some 30 miles from Buenos Aires. Wow, that's super interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and, and right. on top of, of all this uh, background on uh, nuclear power plants that the, the atomic center does. Yeah, the, so here in Argentina, we have uh, three different atomic centers, all of them part of the National Atomic Energy Commission, right? And all those three, uh, Atomic centers, they have different research and develop activities. Material science is very strong at this atomic center, so that's why I'm here. And on top of providing 
support for our own nuclear projects and the operating nuclear power plants. We do all kinds of uh, consulting and technical assistance, and we participate in all uh, projects that involve science and technology in Argentina. So people here has assisted the, our uh, spatial program. We have a spatial program as well in Argentina. We send some satellites to space and people from this atomic center has helped to do that. Wow, that's amazing. It is and it is in our backyard and we haven't known about it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Perfect. Let's go to the next question. You have worked in many research and investigation projects, published many, many papers and taught many students during your career. What will you say is the highlight of these experiences? Well, as 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 I said before, I mentioned this uh, driving force that makes metal want to oxidize, right? And I think it's very interesting that if you give time, they will corrode. Bad things are going to happen, right? And this has this is something that history has showed us. For example, I'm still amazed by the fact that stainless steels, stainless steels, much better than the than the ones uh, we all have in our kitchen sinks, right? Those stainless steels, you put them in pure water under temperature, pure water, essentially no chlorides, very little chlorides. And what happens to them in a nuclear power plant uh, in pure water, they develop cracks, right? Stress corrosion cracks. So those cracks, they don't need chlorides to happen. All they need is the stainless steels, some temperature and time, right? And stresses, right? So the material with stresses and an environment, it forms cracks and it's, it's in pure water. I think it's, it's very interesting that it's in pure water. You don't need chlorides. And if you are interested in this story and the history of stress corrosion cracking of uh, resistant alloys in nuclear power plants, I encourage you to read any of the research papers or review papers or books by, by the late uh, Professor Roger Stael, which happened to to create the corrosion center where I studied when I was in in the US. And I think there's, you, you mentioned also teaching, and I think there's another thing that uh, amazes me is that all the things, most of the things we see right now that they are required for our way of life, like power plants, pipelines, load-bearing structures, uh, I don't know, I, you, we can also mention uh, places where we're going to dispose our uh, spent uh, fuel canisters. So all those uh, structures I've mentioned, again, they are constructed with engineer materials. Engineer materials, they like to oxidize, they like to form oxides, they like to crack. So. And on top of that, most of them, most of those structures, they will outlive us. So they're going to live more than we. So it's not enough to solve today's problem. We have to do something for the future. And 
what can we do for the future? So, I mean, we, we're not sure if we will communicate from the afterward to here, so we must write papers, right? We must write papers, we must uh, spread the knowledge. And also, we need to train the second generation of professionals who will take care of those structures, because our generation, those structures will outlive us, right? So I think that's, I want to finish this question saying that it's, it's actually part of our uh, professional duty to teach the, needs, the next generation besides taking care of today's problems. And the best way to teach the next generation, I think, is to make them involved in solving those problems. So I am very lucky right now because I have a fresh graduate from the same institute I studied who is uh, doing a crash course on everything I do, right? So I'm very happy on that. And I think it's, I'm happy because I think it's part of my responsibility and I feel good when I do part of my responsibility, right? Oh, that that sounds like music to my ears. That's the message that I have been trying to come across everyone. Sustainability and then passing on the knowledge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Excellent. That's so good. Perfect. Um, I'll ask this question and then um, we'll go into the presentation um, because we wanted to talk about desalination plants and aluminium and all that. So. What was that motivated your interest or in general interest uh, for the desalinator plant investigation? Uh, yeah, the, the, the motivation for an engineer is always to solve problems, right? Uh, sometimes, to be honest, I'm short of, on problems, right? And when I'm short on problems, what I do, I go and talk to the people who is building things. Um, here, there's a, one of my partners in this project was, uh, is one of the greatest chemical engineers of this atomic center. And he was doing a, a sort of a internal symposium presentation where all of his students were presenting their projects. And one of the, those projects happened to be a desalinator. So this, this desalinator, when I saw the design of it, it was full of crevices. It was operating at high temperature. It was going to be coupled to a nuclear power plant. And the nuclear power plant was going to feed a, a steam water to evaporate water at this desalinator. And when I saw that, and of course, uh, as at that point, it was just a design, an idea, and I say, what about the material? What material are you gonna use that's, that has to tolerate crevice corrosion, uh, chloride, high temperature, what are you gonna use? And he said, uh, what do you say? And so what I did, I didn't have the answer, and I tailored a research project to test uh, different materials, to do a literature review on what could be a good choice, and that's how it all started. So, um, as you said, I can share a few slides on that. Uh, now that you know how it all started, and um, here we go. So, 
This guy, uh, Mauricio Chocron, was the chemical engineer who was in charge, one of his students was in charge of the design of this uh, desalinating plant. Danisa was a student, the student was attracted once the project was presented, right? And uh, she did her master's student on that. And Raul was, Raul, you know, maybe you know him, he's a very good uh, corrosion engineer working at General Electric, and he was interested in the project and playing a very big role on this. So, uh, just to give you an idea of the design of the desalinator, uh, it has multi-effects, right? So, each one of those is one effect. Sorry. Each one of those is an effect. And in each effect, what you have here, this would be the plate that they were intended to do it with aluminum. And on one side of the plate, you have a, a distillate. So here you have fresh water condensing. And when, when water condenses, condenses it uh, gives away heat, the latent heat of evaporation. So that heat is conducted by the plate to this effect where water now evaporates and then it condenses again here and the same here and the same here. So this way on, on the beginning, the first effect has steam coming from here and here where you have condensate. And the first, the last effect, it has seawater here and then it comes here as a, a distillate, right? So you are feeding seawater uh, sea, uh, sea here, right? From here and here, and then you condense it and collect it here. And then you have a, a heat exchanger to uh, make use of the, to, so, that you, so that you're sure that you don't waste any heat in all this process. But at the end of the day, for our uh, interest that we are uh, corrosion engineers, in this kind of plant, you have high temperature and high chlorides. And the alloy selected, besides being corrosion resistant, it, it must have good thermal conductivity, so it can transport this latent heat of evaporation. It must have a low cost, especially when compared to other candidate alloys, the corrosion products cannot be toxic because you are supposed to be able to drink this water at the end of the day. And it must have good wearability in seawater at high temperature, right? Because this film of uh, distillate and brine must be stable, right? So this aluminum fulfilled all those requirements and there was also some favorable uh, papers that said it had, uh, out considering different aluminum alloys, it had the highest resistance to seawater corrosion, especially because it has no copper. Like aluminum, it doesn't like copper in terms of corrosion. And it has a very, uh, it has lower amount of magnesium compared to alloy uh, 5083, which has a higher strength. And the lower amount of magnesium, it means uh, this precipitate doesn't form, and that's good news because that precipitate, in some cases, it forms, it causes intergranular corrosion. 
The feedwater, the feedsy water was going to be dilated. That is good news for aluminum. And considering all these details of the material, the fact it doesn't have much magnesium, if you go to the literature, it has good performance in cervix experience and pylon plants. But the question still was, what about all the crevices that this desalinator will have, right? Because each one of those plates I mentioned in the first slide, they were connected to one to, to the other one by gaskets, right? And all those gaskets, they form crevices on the material. And when we went to the literature, we couldn't find any results for crevice corrosion of aluminum at high temperature. And when you have an unknown, all of us who did a PhD, we know we have an opportunity. So, the, the focus of this research project was tailored to find what was the effect of those uh, gaskets that form crevices on aluminum corrosion. So to do that, we uh, did some cyclic potential dynamic experiments. And we made our sample was made specially so that it mimic uh, the service condition. We use O-rings to simulate the gaskets. Those O-rings were fixed to the aluminum plate. The aluminum is here. And here you have the crevice, here, here, and here you have the crevice. Then you have a nut, which is tightened with a, a bolt here. And if we are careful and measure, measure this distance, and it's always the same, then you have the same severity of the crevice each time and again. Right. And with that, we went on to study the effect of this crevice when we exposed this material to deaerated and concentrated with chloride seawater and near neutral, a neutral pH solution, which simulates the service condition. Right. So uh, in those kind of tests where we take the metal and we polarize it first in one direction, a localized corrosion starts to occur here, and then we reverse the scan direction, and eventually it repassivates when it crosses the ongoing the, the forward scan. And when it crosses the forward scan, here we can define the localized corrosion repassivation potential. And this would be the localized corrosion initiation potential, right? And something that is apparent in the experiments we did is that there was very little difference in localized corrosion, initiation or repassivation potentials between samples that had or did not have a crevice former. So with crevice would be uh, the red lines and without crevice would be the black lines. And I'm sorry, I used red and it all looks bad right now. So, but the takeaway point from this slide is that uh, with crevice or without the crevice, the electrochemical behavior is very similar. So when we looked at the samples in the scanning electron microscope, what we saw is what we see in the figures here, a 30, 60, and 85 Celsius. And there is some, after a cyclic potential dynamic test, which is um, a very harsh test, right, where you are polarizing at the very high potential your sample, what we see is 
initiation, but just at the boundary between the end of the crevice and the environment. So we didn't saw any very big localized attack underneath the crevice, which was again good news for us. So bad, bad things happens with aluminum. I said aluminum doesn't like copper. So what we did was on purpose, we added some copper, just five PPMs and did the experiments under uh, aerated conditions. And what we saw is that uh, even at the, OSEP, at the open circuit potential condition, when you have copper and you have air, the open circuit potential goes all the way up to values close to the breakdown potential, measured potential dynamically. And if you go and take your sample and watch it in the scanning electron microscope, what you see is what we show here. So we have a tag underneath the crevice and we see crystallographic pits here. And this was done after 60 Celsius in 72 hours. So takeaway point from this slide, don't let copper ions to get in contact with aluminum. Aluminum doesn't like copper ions. So in terms now of uh, summing up all our results on crevice corrosion and peeling corrosion resistance versus temperature, what we see here is that initiation and pit initiation, a crevice initiation potentials, they are very similar and both of them decrease with temperature. Repassivation potentials are uh, occur at lower potential than initiation and uh, the hatch band here, so this here, those rectangles here, they represent the range of potentials of open circuit potentials measured during 70, 72 hours period. So uh, a common rule for predicting crevice corrosion or pitting corrosion is to compare your open circuit potential, which is here, with the critical potentials for initiation and repassivation. So what we see here is that at 30 and 60 Celsius, the plan should be okay. And when we go up to 85 Celsius, the open circuit potential is uh, on the same order of the repassivation potential. Still smaller than the initiation potential, but on the same order on the repassivation potential. So the takeaway point of this is that we must not permit to have to um, localize corrosion to initiate because it might be very difficult to repassivate it, right? Because considering that the repassivation potential is close to the open circuit potential. So the conclusions of this study were, first one, the craze formers had little effect on either repassivation or initiation potentials measure potential dynamically under the same experimental conditions. So in practical terms, this means that the elastomeric cells will not represent an additional risk for the salinator plant's integrity. Localized corrosion initiation and repassivation potentials decrease with temperature as expected. So when you are up in temperature, localized corrosion is uh, easier to initiate and more difficult to repassivate. And when we have crevice formers, the pits preferentially, preferentially nucleated near the crevice mouth, right? So 
the, our recommendation is to minimize any possibility of pit or credit corrosion initiation during operation of the desalinator because localized corrosion might not repassivate during steady state operation. So essentially, take a, a close look to, to heavy ions presence in the feed water of the desalinator and also to maintain a very low concentration of uh, oxygen. So I think that's the, the, the major points, the highlights of this investigation. Thank you, Mariano. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I just I just want to let the the people that are um, here in the in the live presentation, if you want to ask questions, you can do so at the end, um, <clears throat> and then you can write it uh, in the in the chat or the Q and A, and we'll ask that for you. And um, I'll also. For the people that are not here with us, uh, we'll have that or that you want to see the presentation again, we'll have that in our channels um, later this week. Yeah, and I, if, I, if I can say something else, if anyone sure. has a question, you can direct to me by email and I will answer it as soon as possible. That's so kind. Thank you. Perfect. So um, it was a really good description. Um, I think I, I just have one question right on the last conclusion that you um, presented. Sure. So were there any, uh, what, what do they have to do when in operation? Like, do they have to do any inspection? Do they have to do like how they will um, manage if some sort of corrosion will start happening? Well, there are different ways to monitor corrosion. So uh, one thing you could do is to analyze periodically the presence of ions in feed water and distillate, right? So if problems are happening, and of course, not uh, the, at, at the beginning of the presentation, uh, the, the the income the what what gets into the desalinator plant is steam from the nuclear power plant that it goes back to to the plant it doesn't ever touches anything that is in contact with with uh, water that produces the desalinator and the feed water of this desalinator which is seawater right so the seawater gets split into brine which is more concentrated that the original seawater, and then you have the distillate, right? Which is essentially fresh water. So if you monitor periodically what's the concentration of cations, right? So aluminum and other ions on a brine and on distillate, then it's a way to monitor how this plant is evolving with time. And of course you have uh, per periodic shutdowns where you could do some kind of maintenance plan. So, but our scope of the project was limited to study the effect of the crevices and what can we do to, to slow as possible. Excellent. Thank you very much.
Um, just um, going through the questions here. Um, perhaps we can give some final thoughts uh, to the audience, a message for the younger generations, come and do research and development. What would you say to those um, younger people? I know that you're very passionate about passing on your knowledge and uh, and getting prepared, getting people more prepared uh, to, like you said, carry on yeah. what you have started. So what is one, like if you have right now a magical one and you can talk to all the younger people on earth what will that message be for them like what is it uh, uh, to be honest i think it's working on an rd is uh, full of surprises uh, someone might said well but it's an old problem the solutions are new and new problems happen all the time so when when I was a grad student, this this reminds me. Maybe some of you were familiar with this uh, TV show by the the History Channel. It was called the the Pawn Stars. So the the Pawn Stars they had this pawn shop where people uh, came to this pawn shop to sell all kinds of different uh, artifacts and aqua things. And the owner and the introduction said something like. You never know what's gonna come through that door, right? So he never know what people were going to his shop to sell. And you know, whenever a chemical engineer, a mechanical engineer calls me, sends me an email and says, I have a corrosion problem, I never know what it's gonna be. So <laughs> new problems happen all the time. So awkward things happen inside reactors. I mean, I cannot tell most of them because most of them end up in uh, confidential uh, technical reports, but all kinds of awkward things happen. And the good thing is that we always need to go back to books. We always need to go back to papers and sometimes we end up writing new papers, some, sometimes review papers, and I think solving problems is at the the very essence of being an engineer so when we are engineers and we look for problems and we solve them that give us confidence and when we have confidence we feel better and we think we can tackle a harder problems each time and i think that's good that 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 keeps people motivated and it's the opposite to routinary activity Nobody wants to get in the office and always do the same and the same and the same. Some people like, it's very valuable too, but people who like, who study engineer, engineering, I think they like uh, challenges. We like to be challenged and to solve them. So yeah, I think if you like challenges, R&D is the place to be. There are also long-term projects. One of my long-term projects right now is the integrity of pipelines in hydrogen and the challenges, I like them because they make use of all uh, your, your intellectual capacities, right? And when you make use of all your intellectual capacity, you're happy. And it's not, it's not all, only just the technical things, right? Because with the technical things, 
you can do things yourself, but still you need someone to buy that project. So you need, so you still need to be able to sell that project and you still need help. So you also need a lot of interpersonal skills to engage people and to be able to sell the project, right? So I don't know, I think, uh, to be honest, you can be as happy at work, you can be happy at work if you're in R&D. And I think that's the most honest and simplest uh, impression I can, I can offer you. That's awesome, thank you very much. Felipe, do you, um, do you have questions from the audience? Uh, not from the audience, actually I have one for myself, if Mariano sure. will answer it. Uh, how can you like uh, share this R&D uh, investigation or R&D process and how can you like uh, be the people be interested in develop your um, R&D process in different kind of plants? And if it's possible. So uh, do you mean by considering patents and intellectual property and all that? Is that where, where the question points to? So uh, maybe I can say a few words on that. And if I misunderstood the question, you could ask again. But, uh, you know, I never show uh, an actual ISO drawing of the desalinator. I just show like a big picture uh, of it with not much detail. And of course, there are some details of the desalinator, desalinator which are proprietary of the National Atomic Agency Commission. And, but from some things we can share. So for example, what happens to the material is something that can be shared and used for others. Uh, but I'm not sure if that was the question. It was more like uh, how people can be interested in, in these kind of processes, not only the student from engineering, most yes. most likely the management uh, people would like to in, like implement this situation in, in the plan. Yes, I mean, I think it's the, the important is thing is to try to adapt your your speech to whom you are talking to, right? So this uh, uh, interview and presentation was mostly directed to people who are interested in the desalinator. So let's talk about the desalinator. And if I were going to talk to this to an actual manager who owns a power plant, and who let's say the power plant is in uh, Saudi Arabia where water is scarce, and he wants to produce water from uh, seawater, then I sh must have my numbers very clear. What's the energy required by this desalinator? What's the cost? How much fresh water it produces? So with those numbers in mind, you go and talk to the guy, and they, if they are good numbers, he will listen. Right. So I think the most important thing always is to know uh, who you are talking to. Right, and I think that's the uh, best way to get the other person engaged, right? So 
Uh, yes, of course, it's one speech for students, it's one speech for colleagues, and it's one uh, speech for customers. Exactly. I, I hope that, that that helps a little bit. Yeah, thank and you that so goes much. that goes exactly to what we were saying before we started um, the interview is how we get all excited about being materials engineer and, and liking corrosion like meek and stress corrosion cracking and all those failure mechanisms. But we need to adapt our speech. So the people exactly. that take decisions actually have the tools to take the best decisions so we don't have any more flint incidents we don't have any more other like corrosion incidents that are so still happening and then causing death and causing uh, a lot of loss environmentally and financially as well yes. so it, it definitely is uh, a really important question, and um, and thank you for bringing that up, Felipe, because yes, it is yes, I, the way the way we the responsibility um, that we have in that point is how we man how we transfer that message so the people that take the decision take the right decision. Yes, and I think having the having the knowledge uh, is something nice to have it. But having the knowledge also makes you responsible for things, right? So because if bad thing happens, you cannot say I didn't know. You can say I didn't do nothing, but you can say I didn't know, right? So uh, a lot of people, of course, with those corrosion things, they are so specific. Not all the people know stress corrosion cracking, hydrogen embrittlement, but those we know, we have the duty to engage managers to engage decision makers to take action on this. Yes, I completely agree with you. And that's why I uh, fully support and like so much the activities you are doing at, at Infinite Growth. Thank you very much, Mariana. You have been so helpful and we'll have you for sure coming back and talking about that pipeline um, and how yeah, many anytime, anytime. that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for everyone, um, we will just publish uh, this paper of Mariano in in the next um, in the next editions of the newsletter. Um, and then, as he said, reach out to him, to me, to Felipe, like we like to share knowledge. So come come to us and then uh, if we don't know the answer, we'll find someone who knows. Thank you very much for being here, Mariano. Thank you so much. Have a super beautiful afternoon. Thank you very much for the invitation. Have a great day in Vancouver, okay. Felipe for you in Colombia. And yeah, hope to see you both anytime in the future. For sure. Thank you okay. so much. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you.